everyone, and welcome to the Categorically Romance podcast. My name is Bree, and today I am so excited for the guest that is joining me. We have author Isabel Kanyas joining us. Isabel, thank you so much for being here. Bree, thank you so much for having me. I've been looking forward to this, and I'm so excited. Thank you. I'm I am fangirling, but I'm trying to keep it at a minimum. So um, let's start here. Tell me how 2023 has been for you. Uh, <laughs> a wild ride, let me tell you, because you don't even understand the box, uh, the Pandora's box you just opened. Um, in January 1st, I, I think it was January 2nd, I was in Seattle for a long weekend and my husband and I saw a house that we wanted to rent and we had found out that I was pregnant a few months before that. And so we were like, do you know what? Now is the right time to move from New York City to Seattle to be closer to his family who are on Vancouver Island. So that's how January kicked off this year. Um, we moved February, like the first week of February. Our stuff took like a month to get to our place. So I was in this like cavernous, empty house. Oh my God. Across the country. Across the country uh, to a city where I've never lived before, but I do happen to have a lot of friends. So that's actually quite nice. In March, I got a dog, which was wild um, because I was eight, seven months pregnant, eight months pregnant. And then in April, I had a baby. Uh, So that's, and then we're we're here, like there was a magic time warp and in between April and now it's just been a blur (laughs) of, you know, having a newborn. This is my first kid. I don't know what I'm doing (laughs) and having family in town, family leaving, my husband going back to work, me trying to write. I had, I'm like on maternity leave, aggressive air quotes (laughs) because I have this coming out. And uh, getting new projects off the ground is something that I like being on air quotes leave. Mm-hmm. Ideally should not be doing, but I can't not write. So yeah. here we are. It's been a whirlwind. It's like the teacups yeah. ride at to Disneyland, but it's just been going faster and faster and faster and faster. And I'm like, stop, stop the car. I need to throw up, guys. It's just been crazy. Well, I will tell you as I have three and... Mm-hmm. I have a almost 15-year-old, a 13-year-old, and a 7-year-old. You will always be winging it, so just have fun. Enjoy every moment of the chaos and just know that like the winging it never stops. <laughs> but, you know, I'm glad that you are writing cuz I, I think especially with your first, you're just like in it so hard cuz it's like your Ooh. first, you know, but it's like so you got to have those mom moments. You got to have that mom time. So I'm glad you're still doing yeah. something for yourself. I, think I was really worried about losing my identity as an artist when I stepped into motherhood um, because I've seen, you know, women of my mother's generation and my mother kind of like lose themselves a bit. And I am very protective of my identity as an artist. And so I was very scared about that, but I'm good. I feel, yeah. I feel like the last month in particular, I really felt like myself and I've been writing and I have, I have so much in the works that I'm not allowed to talk about. So let's talk about the book I can talk about. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. You write some really cool books. We'll start there. Uh, we'll, we'll go, we'll, we'll transition to there, but I have to know. So give yeah. us like your reading journey. Cause like, 
I want to know how we got to these really cool books that we are getting from you. So like, what did you read it as a, as a, as a kid? Like what was your first love of reading? Um, is it the same? Is it not like, tell us all the details of like Isabel's life as a reader. Bri, I love this question. Okay. So I, the first book I really fell in love with as a kid, I was about nine years old and I was homeschooled and we were in this like homeschool book club. And my mom was like, nag, nag, nag. You got to read the book. Tomorrow's book club. You got to read the book. And I was like, <laughs> okay, fine. Um, it was called Mara, Daughter of the Nile by Eloise Jarvis McGraw. And it's, um, it's a historical thriller romance, but for kids. Um, but it's definitely got like a thriller palace intrigue uh, aspect to it set in ancient Egypt. And the main character, Mara, is a slave who ends up, she's bilingual. She speaks Babylonian and Egyptian, and she ends up in court um, double-crossing both her owner and um, the guy she falls in love with who is like working on the other side of the aisle, so to speak, <laughs> politically. And it was the first book that I had read that had a bilingual main character. And even though it was like written by a white woman, it's like set in ancient Egypt. It's like nowhere near my experience. To me as a little nine-year-old who had like, you know, lived in Mexico as a kid, come back to the U.S., like kind of struggled with that transition a little bit in terms of language specifically because I learned how to read and write in Spanish. And I moved back to the U.S. and everybody was like, okay, whatever, you read with an accent. <laughs> We're going to tease you. <laughs> like it was one of those things where I felt so empowered by this book and I'm still obsessed with it. Like I reread it every once in a while. When I was a teenager, I reread it when I was sick. So it was like my special sick day book. I loved it. And I got, I, I just like was obsessed with it. So it was like an empowering bilingual main character who was like a badass and she got the hot guy in the end and it was great. Um, plus I was obsessed with ancient Egypt. I think I've always had a fascination. I have always had a fascination with the past. So when I was a kid, I went hard on ancient Egypt, like so hard. It's <laughs> like, hard not to, right? Like it's hard, it's hard not, to. not to. It's intriguing. They're mysteries, you know, they're tombs. It's like, where not- is Cleopatra? Like we want to know. <laughs> oh, and Hatshepsut. Like the Hatshepsuts. Yeah. Where, where did all of her stuff go? Yeah. yeah. And there's so much intrigue. There's so many periods. It's like, the the best 11 like 9 to 11 year old play box that has ever existed on earth so don't get me started I, on king tut like don't get yes, me started on little Ramesses king tut <laughs> yeah just i i need to bring in the, the the nerdiness but like i remember when i was like eight or nine i told my mom like i need to learn arabic because i want to become an egyptologist and they do digs in egypt where they speak arabic now and my mom points to that because I got my undergrad degree in Arabic and my master's in Arabic, <laughs> Arabic lit, and then in Islamic studies. So like, that's kind of where it all started. But to rewind back to reading, I was really interested in historical fiction. Another book that like wrecked me when I was about 14 and probably too young for this book, maybe 13, was Gwendolyn Brooks's Year of Wonders, which was about the Black Plague. And it's about this young woman, um who was like kind of a servant in a house in a town called, what was it called? Uh, It was like, it's one syllable. Like it's not Ely. It's a town in England, like this little town that during a plague in the 17th century um, decided to enforce an intense curfew and cut itself off from the world to stop the plague from spreading. And Mm -hmm. so it becomes kind of like this locked house mystery where it's, or, or kind of like, 
it has a very thriller aspect to it because it's like the roads are closed. No one's going in or out. You're trapped. And there's a plague. And there's this like romance between the young woman and like the dad of the house, which looking back is like mm, age gappy and questionable. But like it just, I don't know. I, I think so now thinking back, I'm like looking at this trajectory in my early, my like early teens and like as a kid and I'm like, ooh, history, like some kind of thrilling aspect, like intrigue or we're trapped or it's kind of making sense. But I think like the next step would be my deep dive into the Gothic, which began with Dracula when I was, no, actually it began before then. I think in, I think when I was a junior in high school, we had to read House of Seven Gables and Poe and we did like a section on the Gothic. And one of my, my English teacher assigned us, uh, she told us to write a short story that was like inspired by the Gothic. And so I wrote this like unreliable narrator short story. And I remember I showed it to my mom and she literally gasped at the twist at the end. And it was like the biggest hit I have ever received. I was like, wow, the power. <laughs> this is the best. But we read House of Seven Gables. And then I just kind of kept going. And I remember reading Dracula under the desk in AP US history that year. Uh, when I was a first year in university at the University of St. Andrews, I took an English lit class. And among all the dead white guys and the Brontes, we read Toni Morrison's Beloved when I was mm -hmm. 19. And that absolutely shattered my understanding of what literature and specifically the Gothic could be. And like looking back, I think it was like a deeply formative reading experience for me. And when it comes to like assigned reading in classes, like I did a lot of like area studies when I was in university because in the UK, you don't take like general education classes. You just focus on your degree. Um, in Scotland specifically, you have a teeny bit of leeway, which is why I took a semester of English and then failed a semester of econ. But um, yeah, it really are the way she writes. Oh my God, I reread it recently. And I, I just on a nitty gritty sentence level, I worship at the throne of Toni Morrison because there's nothing like the way she spins a sentence or the way she does character. It's she's incredible. Wow. And yeah. And then around the same time, I think I had read the house of the spirits when I was a younger teen, but I had one summer in between my I think third and fourth years of university where I was intensely lonely. Um, I had not gone home for Christmas. I'd been studying abroad in Egypt. I bounced all over the Middle East. I went back to the UK for university and I was just fiercely lonely and did not feel like myself. I was in a sad place and I reread The House of the Spirits and I'm choking up right now because it felt like coming home. <laughs> it's yeah. such a powerful book. I love Isabella Allende, but, and I love her later work, but I really think that The House of the Spirits is it channels something really powerful. And I think having read her memoir, Paola, and where she describes the process of writing The House of the Spirits, I think she was kind of aware that she was channeling something almost beyond herself when she was Be, telling yeah, her. Story. More than her, yeah. 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 And I chase that in my writing. I try and be that in my writing because I know as a reader, as specifically as um, a Latina reader, there is something so transcendent about coming across of liter a work of literature like that, that just speaks to you so intimately. Oh, a like great she book. wrote this for me. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. Literally, it felt like she was reaching across time to like put her hand on my shoulder and say, it's okay. You know, your family is like my family and I'm still here. So you're going to get through this. So you had these like aspirations. You were going to be an Egyptologist and all of these things. When did the writing happen? I mean, you did that assignment and your mom read it and she gasped and it's like, okay, like were were those like early seeds being planted? Was it always in the back of your mind? Like when did the writing bug? Those early when did seeds, it hit? I think I remember I have my sister say I have a creepy memory, but I remember before I was old enough to write. So probably when I was about four, um, before I knew how to write, I remember dictating stories to my older sister. <laughs> Oh, to make it. her write them down. I come from <laughs> to a have her write them. Yes. Yeah. Like that's what older sisters are for, right? You boss yeah. them around. <laughs> no, she definitely did the majority of the bossing. But in this case, I, I asked her to write down stories. Like I would draw a picture and then I would dictate the story and she would write it down. Um, I come from a family of storytellers. My mom is a journalist. Um, there aren't a lot of writers in my family. There are a lot of artists, um, especially on the Kanya side of the family. There's a lot of um, fine arts um, business going on there uh, and, and a lot of creativity, but there's so, there's like, a, my family is intensely funny. And I think that's because we prize being able to make each other laugh. And how do we do that? Um, by spinning stories and like having, and, and so like our dinnertime conversations are so raucous. Like when my family gets together, like it's a <laughs> good time. It's a great time. Like for example, at Thanksgiving this past year, um, my sis, I'm one of five kids. So all the siblings got together bar one who has three kids and was too busy, which is tragic. But so the four of us got together and then one of my cousins from my mom's side of the family was there and we were at the house of my uncle from my dad's side. Um, and it was so funny because the five of us got together and were laughing and talking and telling stories and making each other laugh. And like slowly, like one husband left the room, then another <laughs> husband left the room. <laughs> and then my older sister's Apple watch dinged because it was like, be careful. The decibel level in this room might be damaging to your ears <laughs> because we were just laughing so much. So I come from a family of storytellers and um, the writing bug bit me when I was young. I didn't start writing. I think I tried writing. I wrote a lot of fan fiction. Let's start there. When I was like 14, 15, like embarrassingly too old, I wrote a lot of Lord of the Rings fan fiction. Okay. I needed to know what what fandom. Okay. (laughs) Um, Yeah, exactly. It's specific. It's specific. Like what kind of nerd are you? What kind of fan fiction did you write? Lord of the Rings. I was, I was off the deep end. Um, because I have this theory, having read the books, you know, before the movies came out and Legolas was blonde, you know, Legolas is a sylvan elf. He's from Workwood. In the text, they're described as having dark hair. And I was like, ah, I have found the Mexicans. They <laughs> 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 have dark hair like me. I'm so desperate for any representation in fiction. I like- feel like, yeah, when when it's uh, when it's people of color, when we're reading something or consuming something, we're just looking for that little clue that it's like, really? okay. You're one I of us. Any brunette I clung to for yeah. your life, you know? Because there was so little. There was so little when I was growing up. Um, and I started, I read Holly Black's Tithe and went and started writing fiction that was very derivative of that. In college, I stopped. Um, I took a creative writing class uh, when in between, I think it was 
junior and senior year of high school at Brown University. I had the privilege of studying there at nerd camp. And I was in this class with like, ooh, scary college kids. And they were all writing very, you know, capital V, very serious um, literary fiction. And I was like, hello, I write fantasy. And it was me and this other kid. So we were the only two kids, uh, or two young women. We were 17. The only two uh, people of color in the class. Yeah. <laughs> And she wrote romance and I wrote fantasy. And the instructor in this class was so uncharitable to us. Like I came out of that experience crushed. Yeah, um, devastated. Yeah. And you know, I was 17. I was in this literary, like creative writing seminar with college kids. I was like so excited to finally be in a grown up writing class. And this instructor was very hoity-toity, very on her high horse, very anti-genre, which I think a lot of people in MFA programs or creative writing programs in college like encounter in the U.S. It's It was a little devastating. So I didn't write fiction all through college because I'd been told like I was bad at it. And so I wrote poetry and I journaled like a crazy person because I can't stop writing. So I just kind of switched genres a little bit. And I wrote my first novel um, in the first year of my PhD program. Um, my husband had been really, my then boyfriend, now husband, was really encouraging in terms of me writing fiction. So I slowly began to tip my toes back into it. And I wrote my first novel in 2016. And he still gives me grief about it because he wants me to rewrite it. And I'm like, nah, it's trash. And he's like, no, it's not. I will die on this hill. <laughs> so so is there a, ever a chance of you like yeah. pulling it out from under the bed? <laughs> One day, that YA fantasy was kind of a Beauty and the Beast retelling that spun off in its own direction. Very influenced now, I understand, looking back by Tamara Pierce, because I was a big Tamara Pierce reader when I was a kid. Um, we missed that piece of the puzzle when we were talking about books. I really loved the Alana Quartet, the, the yeah. what were they called? Yeah. Um, female knights kicking ass, like having frank conversations about birth control with their boyfriends, like blew my little 13 year old mind, like, <laughs> and consent. I was like, this is ahead of its time. There's one book in the series that's like, mm, not great when it comes to like, clearly inspired by Arab people in the desert, blah, blah, blah. It's a bit yucky. But like the rest of it was very ahead of its time. So dip, that those books basically undid my entire Catholic upbringing. <laughs> like, <in terms> of, <laughs> yeah. Reorienting my North Star. I was like, screw the years of catechism. <laughs> like, Deborah Pierce has shown me the way. <laughs> so was like doing your Arabic studies and like, and traveling, was it everything you, you dreamed of? Like I, uh, I've been to uh, the city of Riyadh in hmm. Saudi Arabia and it's like, I think it's just the most beautiful. I feel like desert cities are, they deserve way more praise than they get. It was gorgeous over there, but like, that's the only place that I've gotten to. So like, I'm, I'm living vicariously through you. Like, how was it actually getting, you know, to do the studies and, and go to Egypt? How was it? It was really cool. I had the opportunity to study abroad in Egypt as an Arabic major in 2011 and 2012. So the Arab Spring had just kicked off um, in January of 2011. I touched down in August of 2011, and I stayed there for about a year. And it was, there were a lot of highs and a lot of lows. I think living in Cairo specifically as a woman is very difficult, and I wasn't prepared for it. A few, I think two years before that, I'd spent a summer in Istanbul, which is studying Turkish, which is a very European city. 
it is my one of my favorite cities in the world. I will, you know, I want some of my ashes to be scattered in the Bosphorus. I love the city to pieces. <laughs> and so I walked into Cairo thinking, oh, this will be just like Istanbul. Reader, it is not. <laughs> yeah. It is chaos. And it is known, even throughout the Arab world, for being really bad for sexual harassment. So, you know, you walk in, in the streets as a woman and you are constantly harassed. It doesn't matter what you're wearing. You could be in full niqab. You could be in shorts and t-shirt. Um, I certainly never was um, because of said harassment. But, like, it kind of didn't matter. Like, foreign or Egyptian, it was it was constant. So that was a big yeah. low um, yeah. in terms of living there. But I think it living in other countries as a young person is a privilege, but I think it should be made accessible because it teaches you so much about yourself, about um, the influence of the United States and Britain in the world. And uh, they're very shitty histories. <laughs> and it teaches you a lot about your own culture as well as the culture you're learning to fit into. And it is it was a very powerful experience and it caused me to become, I think, very reflective of myself and my place in the world. Because as a Latina, like at, abroad at a UK school, you know, like <laughs> just surrounded by my, the University of St. Andrews is very international. And I, but the cohort of students going to study abroad in Egypt was, with one exception, myself and a Japanese British woman, very white. And so our experiences varied drastically from the white study abroad students because I would walk into a space and because of the color of my hair and my complexion and my features, people assumed I was Arab, which was quite nice. I mean, I had like, a million conversations where people were like, so you're Lebanese, right? Well, no, your dad has to be Arab. Like, no, you're definitely Palestinian. And I'd be like, psych, no, my mom is Mexican. My dad is white. Like, this is this is the face you get. I guess it's just kind of Mediterranean, guys. Like, <laughs> but um, so that was very interesting because I had a very different experience to some of my fellow students who were white and uh, male. <laughs> had a very different experience to the male students. Um, but I lived in Egypt. I then, um, I lived in Palestine briefly. I lived in Jordan in 2014, which was also a really interesting experience. Um, like you said about desert cities, like I was, I spent a long weekend in Wadi Ram and it was transcendent. Like the beauty of those landscapes has been written about a thousand times, but it never it never measures up. Like I never really understood how icky light pollution is until I was there, like sleeping under the stars in Wadi Ram. And the stars feel like so close. You could just pluck them out of the sky. Like it was absolutely gorgeous. I didn't love living in Jordan because Amen, the city I was in is like, you know, it's kind of like, it's not strip molly, but like, imagine like, an Arizona or Southern California, like beigey strip molly kind of town. Like it kind of has oh, okay. that vibe a little bit. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's weirdly expensive. Like the Jordanian pound at the time was like the exchange rate with the British pound and the amount of money I had in my life, very little, <laughs> made <laughs> it a little stressful. Um, but, and, and there was the conflict in Syria was ongoing at the time. So there were a ton of refugees. There was a lot of political discourse about refugees. It was, it was, a, it was a difficult time, I think, to be living in the Arab world. Um, as a foreigner, yeah, I think for anyone especially. Um, but it, 
I also lived, uh, I've spent a lot of time in Turkey. My PhD is in Ottoman studies specifically. I did 14th century Turkish literature. <laughs> very niche, very nerdy. And I absolutely I love, love it. it. I was wondering what your PhD was in. Okay. This, this makes so much sense. <laughs> yeah. The pieces are fitting together. Um, yeah. So I spent a lot of time in Turkey and Istanbul is, like I said, um, one of my heart places. There is something about being suspended on a ferry going from one side of the city to the other and knowing you're in between two continents that makes you feel like you're in the center of the world. And it was the center of the world for millennia. So, you know, as Byzantium, <laughs> Constantinople, and then in, as uh, the Ottoman capital, it was, it's a nexus and it has the kind of energy that nexus cities have like London or New York City, where it feels like a country unto itself because it's so diverse and it has so many limbs and experiences that happen in its um, in that space. So it's a very special city. I absolutely adore it. So yeah, spent a lot of time studying there and it was everything I wanted it to be in Istanbul specifically, except for the summer, there was an attempted military coup. That was a little scary. <laughs> that was 2016. 2016 was a rough year all around. And for me, it started with the attempted military coup and then there was Brexit and then there was Trump. It was, it was a rough year, but like longest night of my life, <laughs> longest night of my life. Well, like I said, you write some really cool books. Okay. So we got the Hacienda. Mm -hmm. It took over everything. Like I couldn't scroll Instagram without seeing it. It was all over YouTube. Like how, how did that feel for you? Where did you, when did it hit you that like, oh shoot, I wrote this and people love it. Uh, it was weird. It, there was kind of like a delayed reaction. Um, I was defended my PhD the day before the book came out. Oh my gosh. And so, yeah. <laughs> I, the universe was pretty unsubtle about like closing chapters and opening new ones. <laughs> I scheduled them like at least three weeks apart. And then because it was chosen as a Barnes and Noble discovery pick, and then like my advisor's schedule changed, they ended up back to back. And I was like, are you friggin' serious? Like, so I had an enormous amount of anxiety about my PhD defense leading up to um, my book release. So I wasn't really thinking about it a whole lot, which I think is good. And now I have a baby leading up to this book release. So I don't think about it as much, which is good. I think. As authors, there really is only so much we can control. A lot of it, like a lot of like, uh, the publisher is the one who really makes the magic happen. Like you can have a bajillion, I mean, maybe if you have a bajillion followers on TikTok, that changes the equation, but like, I do not. And so I figured like, well, there's only so much anxiety can, can do. So may as well be anxious about something else. For me, it was walking into bookstores and seeing it on shelves, like walking into Barnes & Noble, walking into my local indie at the time was uh, Books Are Magic in Brooklyn. I, it, was this weird out-of-body experience? <laughs> like, I did that. That's me. Think, yeah. Yeah, it's weird. I think the thing that really drove it home was my husband listening to it on audiobook. Because you can look at the written word and be like, oh, it's there in the world for people to read. Ew. Like, how dare you perceive me? <laughs> I'm a Scorpio. I'm deeply private. I'm like, no, thank you. Don't Same. look at me. Oh, yeah. <laughs> don't. don't you also <laughs> yeah, I just, I just, Yeah. But he downloaded the audiobook and he was like, oh, I haven't reread it since before he did copy edits. So I'm going to listen to it again. Bless him. I love him. He's so supportive. But he would listen to it out loud. So I would like walk into the kitchen while he was cooking and 
there would be these actors performing words that I wrote. And because it's somebody else's voice reading and performing the words, there were times where I'd walk into the room and it didn't register that it was my words. It just kind of sounded like an audiobook. It sounded like a story being told. And then like a beat, a beat, and then it would click. Like, holy shit, that's my book. I wrote those words. And it made me want to like dive under the covers and never be perceived ever again. Um, the audiobook is the short answer. TLDR, the audiobook, whew, that hit home. Wow. Well, you you shared earlier that you wrote the story that your husband is still like, you should pull this out and do something yes. with it. Like, tell me, okay, how did we go from there to all the traveling you've done, all the studying you've been doing? How do we get published? Like, what? how did that happen? Yeah. So I was, I began by writing YA fantasy. Um, I think as many authors a lot of authors did. A lot of authors in my cohort, I know, started writing YA fantasy and pivoted because the market kind of changed. Um, so in 2017, I I wrote that book that my husband really loves in 2016. And then instead of revising it because that was hard, I wrote another one. <laughs> um, and I got into Pitch Wars with it. Um, Pitch Wars is a now... Um, sadly departed a pitch contest on Twitter where you enter you your prize is you get mentorship for X many weeks and then a spot in like an agent showcase. And so I was mentored by two fantastic writers, um, Monica Bustamante and Kirby Addis, and they helped polish up my manuscript. And then I queried a bunch of agents with it. And I found my agent through Pitch Wars. Well, indirectly, like I was querying people. And every time I got a rejection, I'd shoot out another another query. Um, my agent was not directly involved in Pitch Wars, but she saw, she saw it on the internet and had been like skulking and stalking me. And then when I queried her, she it was like the day before Thanksgiving, she requested it within 24 hours. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> and we hopped on the phone and discovered that we had excellent chemistry. Her name's Kari Sutherland. She's a KT literary and she is like Shout out my guiding light. My yeah. guiding light. She never gave up on me. So that was late 2017. I signed with her. We polished up my book, sent it out in submission, got a lot of rejections, trunked it. I wrote another book in 2018. We sent it out in submission, got a lot of rejections, revised it for an R&R. You know, that took like six, seven months and over the course of this, I was like proposing my dissertation, getting married, like lots of Life shit with things. Yeah, and just getting rejection after rejection after rejection. My first book was not Mexican enough. My second book was too Mexican and had too many air quotes, like long names, because there was a lot of like the Aztec pantheon involved in it. Um, I was wondering, then, like, because your books are so freaking good. I'm like, what do the rejections say? What are, what are they saying? Is it good feedback? Is there no feedback? <laughs> you know, I was, I, this is a great question. Some of the, some of the feedback was like, you know, this book does not like, isn't like perfect, which it was not. I admit that I've gone back and read it and I'm like, yeah, you know, it's flawed for sure. But like, but that's what editors are there for, right? Like exactly. to help you. <laughs> and that's what my agent was saying. She was so frustrated because she was like, yes. That is the point. <laughs> you read the book. <laughs> but I, and you know, looking back and in conversations I've had with friends of mine who are white, it's like, you know, there is more leeway given to white writers who are, have books on submission to turn in something, like to submit or sell something that is flawed and like have it be polished up. Whereas for writers of color or writers of other marginalized identities, I think, 
you know, at the period, in the period when I think the, the submission world and the submission game has changed since the pandemic, it is different. It's harder, I think. Um, but when I was trying to sell my first book and break in, it was, uh, I felt that it was, there were higher standards for my work because of my name. And that like was the expectation the- was that you turn in a perfect book. Something flawless, you know, yeah. and I was deeply frustrated by it. And so I remember that second book got, we revised it. I busted my ass revising it. Um, I was on my honeymoon in, in Mexico City with my husband when I received a rejection on the R&R. Um, and I was crushed. And I, I remember we were in the lobby of the Anthropology Museum, which was my favorite museum as a kid. So I dragged my husband there. I was like, we're definitely doing this, even though there are no audio guides in English. <laughs> I'm just going to, it's going to be great. It's going to be great. Trust me. And I sobbed in the lobby because I was like, I, I, I have done all I can. What am I going to do now? And he is incredible. He gave me a pep talk, the get back in the saddle pep talk. And he was like, okay, you have two projects, you know, kind of that you're, you know, kind of tiptoeing around the edges of flirting with, which do you think you should do? There's like an adult fantasy or there's this horror project that you were thinking about, this haunted house one. You know, you should get back and start writing one of them. And I was like, okay, um, I think I need to pivot away from fantasy. And I started writing The Hacienda a few nights later um, because I woke up in the middle of the night. <laughs> and um, like the first words of the book started coming to me in the middle of the night. It was wild. I snatched my phone off the nightstand and started typing as fast as I could because I heard Andres's voice like, it hit me so hard. It was like the first chapter all in one piece in my head there with the voice. And for me, I'm a very voice-driven writer. I can have the whole thing plotted out, but I struggle to begin until I found the right voice. And it just it hit me. And I'm very type A, see about like plotting, plotting, plotting um, when it comes to my books. And so, but once I had that voice, I was like, I have to start. I had a very incomplete outline. I hadn't done all the historical research. It was my first attempt at historical fiction. It was my first novel length attempt at horror, but I was like, I have the voice. I have to start. And I did. (laughs) And it just, it became what it was. I love that this happened like in the middle of the night, because it kind of just seems like um, you just had to let it come to you. You know, not mm-hmm. to like diminish all the work that you had been putting in, but I, I totally can imagine like being heartbroken in that moment of like, gosh, I've been busting my butt and I'm being yeah. told no. And then out of nowhere, it's just like you're and, and like and sleep is so important. Like um, even in even in Vampires of El Norte, which we're going to get to like um, Abuela there, you know, Abuela says to I can't remember if it's to Nina or if it's to Nestor, but like how important not waking a person up like startling out of them out of their sleep is so imagining Mm -hmm. you like in your sleep and like the story just comes to you I'm like oh my gosh like that's what you needed (laughs) (laughs) man I miss a solid nine hours like (laughs) it's so important to my creative process um dreaming is a huge part of my creative process I joke that I daydream for a living and it's like not not true um, yeah, I think the, the book, my career came out of a lot of rejection, a lot of rejection. And I think that the way the Hacienda came to me is also, um, how should I phrase this? The way the Hacienda came to me, um, I think proves my, is proof of my belief that the muse will come to you, like the ancient Greek genius will come to you when you are working. 
And so when I'm not like air quotes on maternity leave and juggling a four month old child while my husband is working, um, I write every single morning, even if it's drivel, even if it's just brain dumping. I do, I'm a firm believer in morning pages and just being at the keyboard, in this case, my alpha smart Neo, my the, the, the love of my life. Um, because to me, I've always believed that the magic comes when you're, when you're already in the act working. That's when my best ideas come to me is when I'm working, usually working on something else that I'm not yeah. supposed to be working on. And then a good idea comes to me and I like to jump between projects, which is bad because it means I'm bad at finishing projects. But yeah, I, the Hacienda came to me because of a lot of rejection and because I was practicing a lot. I was doing my drills. I was writing. I was revising. And then I was like, well, I'm going to (laughs) pivot. Really have no choice. If I want to get my career off the ground, I got to try something different. And you know, different. Yeah. Yeah. My first book was too Mexican. Let's be demasiado Mexican. Let's be way too Mexican. Let's go hard. (laughs) We have the incredible Hacienda, which was fantastic. We have to, how, Tell me how your brain works. What were you doing in life that you come up with this concept that is Vampires of El Norte? Because (laughs) I mean, like supernatural Western. I'm like, we need a whole, maybe there is a whole subgenre of this, but like, I was like, I need more of this. Um, What were you doing that this came to you, Isabel? I was uh, finishing my PhD and trying to escape it at every corner. (laughs) I the I, I had an idea for something that was, I guess, a bit of a sequel to the Hacienda. And my publisher was like, nah, no, thank you. We would like another standalone, um, which devastated me because I, I love Andres and Beatriz. They are very special to me. <laughs> um, and I have thoughts and feelings about how their story uh, continues. Um, but... I had this one side character called Nestor who had walked into the book, like the idea for that book that is now scrapped, fully formed with a very strong voice and a specific background coming from Texas, which is where my mother's family's from. And my editor um, with her bird's eye view uh, pointed at him and was like that, you know, his background, that's your family's background, right? And I said, yeah. And she said, why isn't the whole book about that? And I was like, oh, duh. My editor at Berkeley is Jen Monroe, and she, I really like working with her. <laughs> She's great. Um, but I, so I started with that, and I was like, oh, weird, writing close to home. Because, you know, my family history is not from the region that um, vamp- that uh, the Hacienda is set in. Uh, my mom's family, my mom grew up in the Rio Grande Valley, and uh, she was born in a town called San Benito, or was raised in Harlingen, if that means anything to your listeners. They're near Brownsville. They are I live very in San Antonio, so I'm like, okay, you get okay. It. You get it. Yeah, they're the, the valley, like very South Texas. And so like my mom's family has been there for, for generations. And my wow. grandpa's from Tamaulipas. My, um, my grandma's mom was from Nuevo Leon. Um, but her dad, and like as far back as my mom has been able to trace, they've been in South Texas for many, many generations. many. And so I was, and so my mom has always been fascinated. And I think she wrote her master's thesis about, you know, how the border has moved around her family and it's moved and shifted, but it's in 1848 at the end of the Mexican American war, it made this big jump from, um, I think the Nueces river to, um, the Rio Grande where it just, 
suddenly there were all these people living in South Texas in the 1840s who had been living there and ranching for, you know, 100, 200 years that suddenly found themselves the citizens of another country, yeah. a hostile country, you know, an invading country that spoke a different language and was rapacious in terms in terms of its interest in their land. And so it was it was actually kind of difficult to research because a lot of the history is very, you know, it's not one in which, in my mind, the good guys win. So it was tricky setting a book that is structurally a romance in this historical moment, because what happens to families like Nenas um, and Nestor's when the war is over? Eventually, they lose their land. Eventually, their ranches get broken up. You know, fences get put up. Their land gets stolen out from under them because of... Um, a lot of people's inability to read English and get tricked into signing contracts that they didn't understand. Um, a lot of people were killed for their land. It was, it's a very dark little bit of history in this pocket of the world. And so I was like, how do I write a romance set in this historical moment? How do I end it happily? It was kind of tricky. Um, but I was also very influenced by my family when I was writing this book, not just because of their history, but their voices. Like there's so much banter between Nana and Nestor. And like I said earlier, like my family are big storytellers. Like the first chapter of this book had way more siblings <laughs> for all the characters. There were just a lot more people because when I envision like um, a family for one of my characters, if the character is Mexican or Mexican-American, like there's a big cast. And I think there's only so much that a novel can, only so much character weight that a novel it, as a specific form Western form um, can shoulder. <laughs> Did this book originally have a large enough cast to make it a miniseries? Yup. Would I love to see that? Absolutely. <laughs> Hollywood, call me when you're done striking, please. Yes. But, yes, we need this <laughs> on film. Uh, please, please, please. Um, but I, I, yeah, the Western part of it, it didn't occur to me to set, I, I didn't set out to write a supernatural Western, or I guess in like deep, dark genre world, they call it like weird Western because there is some weird Western stuff out there. And the joke is, is that that shit never sells. Like it's too, <laughs> too niche, you know? And it's like, psych, I sold a Western to a big five publisher. Yeah. <laughs> Joke's on them. <laughs> um, I, I just started kind of writing a story um, that was set in the region that my family is from. And it just so happened to be that. And it just so happened to have like hot cowboys and a lot of horses yes. to like yes. feed my inner horse girl child. <laughs> and then so, the vampires came in. <laughs> yeah. Tell it like for anyone that's listening that I'm, this is going to come out very soon, but for anyone who has yet to get their hands on a copy, how do you describe it to them? I pitch this as, um, I guess, cowboys versus vampires on the Mexican uh, American border in South Texas. Uh, they're, Vampires of El Norte is the story of uh, two young people, Nena and Nestor, who are separated by a tragedy when they're children, their childhood sweethearts, separated by a tragedy for almost a decade and are thrown together again on the road to war in 1846. And they have to defend their home, this rancho, from both from threats, both human and supernatural. The supernatural, of course, being vampires, <laughs> but not like human-esque vampires, like not the Dracula I was reading under the desk in history class in high school. Um, these, I decided to to go on a bit of a monstrous bender. This is a bit of a creature feature. There's some scary monsters that lurk in the night in this book. They're not, uh, they're not going to get up on two legs and talk pretty to you like Edward Cullen or the guys from Vampire Diaries. They're 
I'd say of the same family as the Chupacabra. That's what <laughs> I would. Okay. I would yeah, look maybe. living in San Antonio. Bad. I was like, is this a Chupacabra? You know, get it. <laughs> I, yeah, I was thinking El Cuco. I was thinking like, I want something like monstrous. My, my husband was like, you were watching too much Stranger Things, Isabel. <laughs> I was like, well, <laughs> you're not wrong. Because you like was. describe the gray skin and, and like they're, sometimes they're like on all fours or like you'll they'll stand up from all fours. And I was like, this is so cool. So like what inspired the idea to not go the like the expected vampire route? Because I, I think it was just so brilliant what you did. I think you I think I think it was just kind of me being rebellious. I had an idea for something that's more of the traditional vampire, I guess you could say, based on Mexican folklore. Um, in central Mexico, there's stories about uh, Tlahuelpuchis or blood-sucking witches who are vampiric, and the folklore is fascinating. Um, and I think there are some writers who are drawing on that, and I'm like, yes, 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 want to read it, want to read it. Um, but I toyed with the idea for a bit, and I realized that I, uh, because of all the the things I wanted to juggle in the book, uh, the Mexican-American War, the romance between these two characters, the classism, um, the whole society that they live in. I needed a supernatural element that worked um, because there's... I was in a writing workshop once and I had an instructor who was a bit of a bitch. I did not like them at all. <laughs> but one thing they said to me when they were critiquing my work was like, you have to think about where and how hard you're making the reader work. And it stuck with me because I was like, based on the story you were critiquing, that's like a little bit racist. However, it is something to think about when you're writing in genre, um, a genre that has supernatural elements specifically, because there is only so much that the reader wants to be able to juggle. Mm -hmm. If you're making them work hard to come to grips with the world, are you going to throw in three more political systems? Are you going to throw in another magic system? Are you going to throw in um, competing religious systems? The characters might get lost in all of that. I've read books where they kind of get lost in the noise and I've been frustrated because they're very good books otherwise, but I'm like, mm, I am very much a character-driven reader and a character-driven writer. And like plot is very important to me. My goal in life is to write books that you can't put down. That is like my single metier. Like I, no matter what I write, I want you to never be able to put it down. <laughs> I want you to like spill food on the book. You can't put it down. Um, you are but, very successful so far. So Thank you. Thank you. you. That means the world to me, honestly. <laughs> um, but uh, character is a huge part of that for me, because if you are super invested in what they're going through, you want to find out what happens to them. So I wanted to make sure the characters didn't get lost in the world. And I wanted to make sure that they were not, I think, just in terms of like, yeah, I don't know why I chose to make them <laughs> the vampires so monstrous instead of the traditional route. It was just a a feeling I had, an instinct. And my editor uh, was asking, you know, kind of pushing like, well, is Nana going to turn into a vampire? When I was like, talking about the book at the very beginning. And I was like, no, that's not, that's not really what I'm going for. I kind of, I want something. It's just a feeling, I guess, an instinct. Like I wanted, I wanted more of like a cryptozoology bent. You know, you listen to like lore podcasts and hear about like scary monsters um, in the dark in like rural places. I was like, that's kind of what I want. I want that kind of creep in this book. Um, so I chased that vibe, so to speak, and ended up with, uh, these very monstrous little guys. <laughs> and I think that you, um, I think it's, it is written very, very tight. Like everything that's in there 
is what needs to be in there. And like at no point do Nana or Nestor ever like get lost in what's going on, even though you do at the same time have a lot going on, but it's all important stuff. Like I think um, obviously there's like a class difference between them, which Mm -hmm. I think is such a big part of the conflict and you never really forget that. Um, There's a beautiful second chance romance. Oh my God. Um, Just, I mean, so indulgent to write from the moment he takes off and the moment where he nine years later and like their eyes meet you're like oh my god like he they're back you know they're back and then (laughs) and then but it's also I think it's a really beautiful which is weird to say because we are talking about a book with monsters but it's a beautiful book about grief and I I've honestly grief in in especially like romances or just love stories in general anything tend to be some of my favorite and in the book um no it's abuela that breaks it down she says to you Mm -hmm. nena died to her you left those are two very different griefs and so you understand like her frustration you understand his confusion like they're physically back in the same place but they're still both grieving this long time that they've been separated from one another it's I'm having that out-of-body experience where I'm hearing you like (laughs) talk about it and I'm like oh my god you read it and you get it like you get it like one of that that line that conversation that Nestor has with Abuela where he his Abuela where she um talks about grief like that like I remember sitting in my apartment writing that and thinking about that and talking about it with my husband and now you've read it my little mind is blown. Like, and you get it. You get yeah. it. I think for me, I think second books are, they're monsters in their own right. They resist domestication. They, writing this book was the hardest book I've ever written. Um, it is the one that has changed the most from original seed to finished product. Like with the Hacienda, it was one hard and fast draft and honestly, just polishing from there on out. This one went through different iterations. It had different speculative elements. It had different casts of characters. And it got, it. and I got really, I had terrible morning sickness when I was revising it. So it was really, and I was burnt out from my PhD. So it was physically a very demanding book to write for me. Um, and to hear you talking about it and like, get it? I'm oh, not yeah. choking out. Don't perceive me right <laughs> now. <laughs> no, I just, like I, I always look for those, those, I feel like authors, y'all will give us these little Easter eggs of like, usually it's like one sentence for me personally that I'm like, this is what it's about. And it's because I'm going to be a sixth grade English teacher this year. And I just want to be like, find the Easter egg. There's always one at least. And for me, when Abuela said that, I'm like, that's what this is about. That's the thesis of this book. You know, I hadn't thought I have little hairs on my arm are standing on end right now. I have goosebumps because you're right. That is, that's a sentence that, you know, I kind of just wrote, but it ended up being, it shines light on one of the thematic underpinnings of this book. Because when I was writing it, I had a lot of grief um, about when I was researching this history and what has been done and what has been done to people, uh, whose family histories are the same as mine and like obscured by history and obscured by time. Like maybe even my ancestors dealt with this incredible tragedy that befell this culture and this, these people. Um, It was hard to read about. And also like my grandparents are getting old and Mm -hmm. you know, my grandma was diagnosed with dementia and that's been really difficult on my, it's been really hard on my family. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I, you know, I had a wonderful opportunity to like, just sit and talk with my grandparents, like about my grandpa's childhood, about my grandma, um, her mom's story and just like be with, to be with them in a quiet space and just listen to them talk. Like, I don't know how many times in my life I'm going to get that again. So I feel yeah. like, oh no, I'm choking up. <laughs> Can you tell I'm uh, a very sleep deprived young mother? Um, <laughs> we get emotional I, as mom. We become, we become even more emotional. <laughs> yes. You know, it's just waterworks every day of the week here. Yeah. Um, but uh, I had a lot of grief and, you know, I don't want to like pre mourn them because that's a bit much, but like I'm a sensitive artiste. And when I think about my family and my family history and my identity, it's very tied to them in particular. And so the idea yeah. of um, change happening and, you know, the grand march of time carrying them further and further away from me is is really hard. So I think that seeped into the book as well because it's so influenced by, you know, my family, their voices, and these two people in particular. Yeah. Oh gosh, wouldn't it just I mean, Abuela, she's so respected. And like my maternal grandmother, she's the last living grandparent that I have and she's been really mm-hmm. sick. And I just I'm think so every sorry. day, like you said, you don't want to pre-mourn you don't no. want to pre mourn them. She's, I'm like, she's, she's still here, <laughs> you know, but I'm like, I just know that if God forbid, if anything ever happens to her, I just know I'm gonna have that feeling of like, that's the end of a whole era of my life yeah. and you're not ready for it, you know, but like all the stories you're like, tell me everything. <laughs> you know, like, I want to know everything. everything. You know, my grandpa would joke, like I can, my grandma, actually, she was like, I can tell you're writing this down in your head. And I was like, yes. <laughs> I am. This stuff is gold, first of all. And also I never, I, I never want to be without it. Like this is very selfish of me in, in some regard. Like I want to keep it for me. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then I turn around and other people read it too, but this is for the books I write are first and foremost for me. Yeah. And I think um, I was once asked like, why did you blend so many genres in this book? Because, you know, Vampires of El Norte is a supernatural Western. Um, it's historical. It's got war, it's got a bit of a road trip, and structurally, at its heart, straight up, it is a romance. They're horror elements, for sure. And I think, actually, the romance aspect has thrown some horror readers off. I've gotten some reviews where they're like, this was not scary enough. Also, what's with the kissing? And I'm like, what's with the kissing? Sir, that is the point. You know, (laughs) I have... As a okay, so I grew up reading mostly horror, and now mm-hmm. I mostly read romance. And I will die on the hill that I, for one, feel like they're a lot more similar than I think people want yes. to give them, believe yes, that they yes, are. Yes, and I don't yes. understand why we can't have more of the two in one story. I don't know it's the patriarchy <laughs> because horror historically has been a very white man's genre, and we're here to to take it, <laughs> make it ours, you know. <laughs> Um, I mean, there are horror, like horrific things happening in this book, but at the core of the story, like, yeah, that's, that's all going on. And you have two people in love, which makes it even more scary. Cause it's like, what if they don't end up together? Yeah. The stakes are high, you know, they could, they could, they could get hurt. They could get eaten by the monsters, you know, or God forbid their parents could keep them apart. You know, I remember asking my grandma about El Cuco. I was like, tell me every spooky story you ever heard when you were growing up. And she was like, well, there was El Cuco. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like the thing my father would tell us to really scare us was like, your your mother will hear about this. 
<laughs> she was like, yeah, my mother was the scariest part. So I was like, <laughs> I love it. Yeah. And I was like, well, uh, yeah, that checks out. Um, yeah, I think horror and romance are, they're genres where affect is so at the forefront because you can have a very, very small story. Like if you were to pitch it, it's like, oh, um, two baristas fall in love. Or I don't know, two, like an Allie Hazelwood book, two scientists fall in love. Like how do you, or a horror book, it's like, oh, there's something spooky in the house. How do you turn that into something that keeps a reader absolutely glued to the pages? It's powerful and difficult work actually, because like we don't have like when you think of like rom-coms or horror movies, it's like, what do those have? Those have musical cues. Those have the actors looking at each other. There's a lot of visual stuff going on. There's a lot of sound work happening to build tension and to to keep the the the, the audience on the edge of their seat. But with the written word, it's like, what have you got? You've got black letters on a white page. Mm-hmm. And it's all about how you control sent on like a very nitty gritty sentence level, how the writer is able to control the way the reader is feeling through sentences. And when you think about it, it's like that shit is witchcraft. It's very difficult. And I think horror and romance in particular hinge on the writer's ability to do that. And I think it's a very, it's a very powerful experience for a reader. And I think these two genres are the ones that people turn to for escapism for a reason because romance writers and when you put them together man <laughs> that is where the magic happens the tricky thing the tricky thing about squishing romance and horror together is like well we're running for our lives the house is trying to kill us you know they're monsters in the dark where do you fit in the kissing it's like okay where are they gonna bone this is like a very difficult problem structurally <laughs> there was a point where i was like distraught telling my husband like oh no i have to cut a scene where they're finally gonna have sex what are we going to do? They're not going to have sex in this book. And then like a week later, I was like, I fixed it. I fixed it. (laughs) And they're both so like I'm such an emotional reader too. And I just feel like they're both even horror in its own way. Horror readers, viewers don't come for me. I'm a horror fan, but I'm like, I even think of like some of my favorite horror movies, like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre series. I'm like, I empathized with that crazy family that was sending Leatherface out there to kill people. Like, you get it. Like, my emotions are in it. So I'm like, they are so, those are the only two genres that I feel like emotionally I get really invested in. And I'm like, they're so similar. Yeah. And I think, I think, I think it, it, they both, they appeal similarly to a specific kind of reader. I think, the reader that you the reader that you and I identify with is like the one who is deeply invested in a character and like sympathizes with them. I think I, I think it, a lot of the times I would pick up horror novels and find them lacking because of um, insufficient character work or character work that didn't uh, ring true to me. And so I when it comes to horror and my books going forward, I think are going to be scarier than Vampires of El Norte. I regret to inform my older sister who does not read horror, but does read my books and harangues me. Like, why can't I write a non-scary story for once? I'm like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's just going to get worse for a little bit. I'm sorry. One day I will write a romance, but for now it's going to be smoochies and spookies, as my mother says. Tell me, what was, um looking back on the writing process, did you have a particular like favorite scene or moment or just character in general from the yes. book? 
Yes. I mean, I love, I love uh, both Nana and Nestor. Nestor is special to me because he's such a softy, even though he's like very hard on the outside um, and tries to, it is quite macho. I think writing sensitive men who act macho is. Oh, and he's so wounded, Isabel. He's so oh. wounded. Delicious <laughs> free. It's so fun to write. It's deeply indulgent and it's so fun because you, when you're in their head as a reader and as a writer, um, you see that mismatch of exterior and interior and how much they're suffering on the inside. It's like, oh, so good. Uh, so I love him. He is, and he's the book, he's the piece of the book that came to me first. So for that, he will always be special. Um, I loved, absolutely loved writing the scene where they see each other, where they see one another for the first time after nine years and they realize, yeah. oh, oh shit they're here he is um, freaking out I, and I was with him I was like oh gosh oh, <laughs> when my aunt read this book she was texting me she was like I'm at that scene I'm at that scene and I was like oh, I'm so excited writing that scene um I read Susan Dennard's uh she's a, a YA writer I read her newsletter about craft and I have for god for years like maybe it's almost as long as she's had the newsletter so like since 2014 2015 ages um and she writes about how in every book or even every chapter or every scene, you need to have that like cookie. Like you need to be chasing the thing that you're like the the real good stuff, you know, the treat. <laughs> and so for me, that was like a cookie scene. Like that was, I was writing towards that. Like that was fun. Another scene that was super delightful to write um, was, and that I'm very fond of was um, there is a point, no spoilers, where Nestor gets injured and Nana helps him. And I think writing that was just so fun. Oh yeah. Um, I love that scene. It, it was, it was big fun. I'm not going to spoil anything, but like it, it's look forward to it guys. Yeah. <laughs> I think my, one of my cookies, because we, we, we kind of know, you know, Nestor has been, He's been running and, and we get it. You know, we get yeah. it. It's very early in the book. But then there's this moment where they're back. And is it is it Beto or Beto? How do you say it? Beto. Yeah. Beto. Beto's yeah. like, um, basically like, I know she's important to you because I've heard you like call her name in your sleep. And I was mm -hmm. like, oh, oh, God, our little wounded. Yeah. 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 Like. You couldn't tell. I'm a big romance reader. This we're big gonna go macho Nestor trying to like hide it and fake the funk. And Beto's like, I'm on to you, bro. Like, I see right through you. Yes. Ah, I oh, love it. so good. I love writing characters like that because my sisters call me on my shit. Like, I have, um, you know, I'm a Scorpio. I have an exterior. I'm being actually quite vulnerable with you right now. And, like, I feel like we click. And so it's two Scorpios, you know, we feel we're, it's the comfortability. <laughs> We just, each other. we just we just vibe I, my husband is like i don't believe in astrology but i also don't not believe in astrology. yeah <laughs> this is a scorpios period it's like all of my best friends he's that he's introduced me to are scorpios so i'm like there is a theme here um i love so i love writing characters who have a hard exterior and are like squishy on the inside um i think it creates a lot of um it's interesting to write because I think uh, as a reader, you, you're let in on all the secrets of what's actually going on inside and what there's this great dramatic irony watching them move through the world and learn and change and learn to let people in. But also because it's my experience, like having a harder exterior being I'm slow to trust. I'm uh, slow to, you know, ironically for somebody who like pours their soul into a book and like hawks it on every street corner. It's like I am slow to share my feelings. 
<laughs> with people. And my sisters have called me out on that quite a lot. So writing the side character who calls, who sees right through them and calls them out. Um, oh, it's so fun. It's yeah. so fun. I mean, like with the hard exterior, because I feel like Nana has hers as well. And but it goes back to what Abuela said, like she's just hard because like her best friend, her childhood love left her and she had no idea why. But I feel like those cookies, when I started to feel like they're crumbling a little bit, was like she asked him, like, how many women have you been with? And mm-hmm. she's like crushed. And he's like being honest. He's being honest with her. Like, you know, he's like, I'll, I'll be honest with you. And she's like, she's so crushed about it because it's like you're you went on and lived life without me like you left me and it's so brutal Isabel but it's so good you know I I don't know about you but I am a big Taylor Swift fan and I was trying to think about um like what Taylor Swift song like works for this this couple because for the Hacienda it's wildest dreams um for reasons but Mm -hmm. for this one there's a song called right where you left me that's on the album evermore and it just occurred to me right now it's like yeah because she was right there where he left her like there was he had to she was there and he was out there living a life being a man being free and she was here you know and had to pick up the pieces and figure out how to move forward and find agency for herself so she has She's a very angry person. And I think it's because I am too, but she, yeah, her grief is different from Nestor's and it's different and it speaks in different ways. He clams up. She lashes out. Oh yeah. She says it one like her. I think it's in her inner dialogue. Um, It's around the scene that you shared, like what is one of your favorites? She's like, I know that I can like hurt him with my words or like the best way to hurt him is with words. And she just yeah. like lashes out at him. And I'm like, yeah. I'm she the same he- way and this is wrong, but I'm the same I way. <laughs> yeah. Words are very hurtful sometimes. And I think like, I think especially in romances, um, seeing characters realize they can hurt each other, hurt each other and then grow past that and be compassionate towards one another is very powerful because you see that shift in them, but also you see their weaknesses and their fault lines. And I think for Nena, it's like, she does say some really hurtful shit and Nestor says some hurtful things too. But I think um, in, in that, I think writing, writing their dialogue and their arguments was like, I was chasing the words, like writing as fast as I could because they were just going off in my head back and forth, back and forth. Like, um, their dialogue came very easily to me because I think not only were they like fully realized little imaginary friends for me, but also they, they're very passionate people. And Nena especially, yeah, she can be very hurtful. Um, I think I have been in the past too. So like, you know, it's, there's so much of every writer in every book that they write, but I think, um, each book represents like a specific part of a writer. Um, the Hacienda represents specific parts of me and <laughs> Vampires of El Norte is my grief and rage book. Earlier we chatted about um, when you went to the, I think it was like the MFA program and, you know, you and an, another, um, another student, the only students of color and y'all were the only ones writing like genre fic. Mm-hmm. As a writer now, you have these two books out that people love. Tell me the importance of genre fiction. Like how did, you know, how's, I mean, obviously your heart's always been in it, but if we could reach out to that professor, why does it matter? Well, 
first I would give her a middle finger because <laughs> say <laughs> rage. <laughs> I'm an angry little gremlin. Um, I genre, especially in the times we live in, is a powerful tool for escapism. I think it its power to engage the imagination is also critical because it takes us outside of ourselves. Um, and you're a teacher. I've been an educator as well for college kids. And I, I'm hesitant to, to, to talk about my books as didactic, I think, because there's an expectation, unfortunately, that I hate placed on the shoulders of women of color or people of color who write historical fiction to air quotes, teach the reader mm -hmm. about different periods or different people. And it's like, mm, you know, literature writ large takes readers on journeys. And I think what genre fiction does is it can tempt and trick an otherwise reluctant reader or somebody who's reluctant to read outside of their air quotes comfort zone into a space where they encounter new people, new ideas, new voices, new ways of looking at the world. Like I can't tell you how many Instagram posts I've been tagged in where people said like, oh, horror is not my thing, but I wanted to read this book. Or, you know, a lot of white readers who are like, you know, I, I do not read my Goodreads reviews. I am certain there are reviews out there that say like, oh, I couldn't identify with these characters because they're not like me. Er, like parentheses, white. Because there is a lot of that floating around the internet. And I think what genre can do is take that reader on a journey and change them. Um, I think fantasy and horror in particular and romance being genres of escapism um, provide safe places for people in trying times. Like I am so passionate about genre, like horror in particular, I think really was a bedrock for my sanity during lockdown in early 2020. That's when I was finishing writing The Hacienda because the reading that I normally did, which is like high fantasy was not providing enough escapism because I had all of this anxiety and it had, you know, it, it fed, like it gorged itself on the things that were going on around me. I was living in New York City, you know, it was very scary in April of 2020. And if I fed it a haunted house story instead, it, it, it wasn't sated, but it was quieter. And I think that's, uh, horror is very powerful in that way. And when I was super anxious in the lead up to my book release and my PhD defense, which happened back to back, um, I read so much romance. I read so much romance. And I think that's why Vampires of El Norte is the book it is, because I read so much romance, because it's a safe place. And I think that's why it's, it's extra vital for publishers to put romances and other genre works by writers of color into the world because like we deserve our space our safe places too honestly like more than the average white reader we deserve those safe places where the, it ends happily yeah. or like yeah it's scary but you know we need you know, some person hope. Of color doesn't really die first you know <laughs> we maybe we all die yeah 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 so i i've never been somebody who was into literary fiction or realistic literary fiction. I think magical realism is as close as I will creep as a reader and a writer. Um, that's just always been who I am. I think because being raised extremely Catholic, um, my world as a young, as a child and a young person was dominated by conversations of like the battle between good and evil, lightness and darkness, demons are real, exorcisms are real. Like I'm not making this up. <laughs> Like oh, I went to dad, Catholic school. I got you. You get it. You get it. Like <laughs> yeah. imagine that ranked up to 15 because my dad is an Opus Day. And I remember him calling me 
to give me a bit of a lecture when he when the Hacienda first came oh out because gosh. we thought it was real and we shouldn't be like misleading people. And I was like, sure, Jan. <laughs> okay. <laughs> like, don't worry. Um, oh, and witchcraft. Definitely. We got our chonies in a knot about witchcraft. Um, but I think my childhood was my sister, my older sister pointed out our childhood was like a very, we lived in a speculative world, you know, being that Catholic, being raised aware of, you know, forces that were larger than us and us being part of a greater battle between good and evil. Like that's quite speculative when you think about it. It's like, is that not the underlying theme of every young adult fantasy novel that has ever been written? Basically, (laughs) yeah, yeah. I was, I was made for genre. I was formed for it from the very beginning. (laughs) You were, and you're here and you're doing great. And I just, I can't wait. I mean, I know you said you're working on things you can't tell us about. Is there anything that you can, like, what's next from you? Um, so I write short stories. Um, I wrote a flash fiction piece called There Are No Monsters on Rancho Buena Vista. And it's set kind of like in a world adjacent or very similar to Vampires of El Norte. And it will be appearing in um, the The Best American Science Fiction and Fantasy 2023, edited by R.F. Kuang. Oh, I love Um, those. Okay. Yes. Yes. So my short story was selected to be one of 10 fantasy stories that appears in 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 this anthology. And I was... I was going to like my last OB appointment when I got the email and I like burst into tears in the car (laughs) Um, because this is like, I feel very, very uh, lucky that the Hacienda has found such a readership. Um, My short stories definitely haven't. And that's cool. That's fine. They're more of like exercises and they're more experimental for me. Um, They're very fun though. I have a list of them on my website, isabelcanas.com, but there are no mantras on Rancho Buena Vista will be appearing in October in that volume. I think it's October 26th. Yeah. So that's what's coming out next for me after Vampires of El Norte. And then after that, we have, you know, keep an eye on my newsletter, sign up for it, keep an eye on my socials because I have such cool stuff to show you guys. Like I'm frothing at the mouth about my new adult project. It's just, (laughs) I, I cannot say more. I cannot say more, but I will say that my, my next project's coming up, emphasis on the plural there, are um, insufferably gothic. Oh <laughs> like gosh. definitely play with the same, um, they're different stories. They are very different from the Hacienda and Vampires of El Norte, but they do play with Latin American history. They play with horror and they play with heartbreak. So I think, do they have happy endings? I guess we'll have to see. Do might be a little the bit of- thing, Isabel. Do yeah, the thing. We'll- we will read it. <laughs> We have to talk about them when they come out. I cannot wait. (laughs) Yes. So that's what I've got going on. Well, please plug all the places that we should be keeping up with you online. Um, So social media right now is an absolute garbage fire. I'm no longer on Twitter. You can find me in a variety of places because it seems like we're all trying to figure out what's next. Definitely Instagram, Isabel Cañas underscore. Uh, Threads, same handle. Um... Blue Sky is a thing, same handle. I don't, I, I don't know. Instagram is where you'll find me. And my newsletter, which is a tiny letter uh, slash Isabel Cañas. And my website, isabelcañas.com. That's where you can find me. <laughs> <laughs>